commandment. Lord, we ask now that your spirit would quicken your word. If anyone here doesn't know you as their risen Savior, today would be their day. Those of us who do, Lord, we would draw nearer to the cross and be further sanctified, cleansed, and, Lord, called into that walk with you that you've ordained for each and every person here. That we take up our cross and follow you. For such is the ministry that you gave to the apostles and you've given to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Martin Luther, he said these words. He said, learn to know Christ and him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what was mine and given me what was yours. You have become what you were not, so I might become what I was not. Isn't that true? Jesus is righteousness. We're nothing but sin. Wretched men and women that we are, that's where we're born. David said, I was born in sin, conceived in sin. And yet Jesus has come to give to us what was his, something we could never give to ourselves, to make us what we weren't, to make us into what we can become only through his shed blood, only through his righteousness. If you're with us last week, uh, we started with the cross. Remember that Jesus, uh, further back, you know, he's betrayed in the middle of the night or in the wee hours of the morning there in the garden. He's ultimately convicted. Uh, in the middle of the night, under false charges by the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers brought to Pilate early in the morning, 6 a.m. in the morning. He's before Pilate. Pilate doesn't know what to do with him because Pilate's under great conviction. Pilate sends him to Herod. Herod can't find anything wrong with him either, though he does mock him. Herod, who had already killed John the Baptist, Jesus' relative, sends him back to Pilate. Pilate does everything he can, tries to actually take the worst of all people that he could think of, Barabbas, say, here's, a, here's just an absolutely vicious, vile person. You know, you, I'm sure you want to put him on the cross, and the people said, no, 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 we want Jesus on the cross. Pilate, you know, Pilate was nervous. His wife even had a bad dream, says, don't touch this man. Do, do nothing to this man. But Pilate couldn't, he couldn't give up his power and position, so he finally tried to wash his hands symbolically of it and said, hey, I didn't kill him, you guys did. And he sent him to the cross. And so Jesus was on the cross by 9 in the morning, as we talked about. 9 a.m. he's on the cross. And he's, uh, before he comes to the cross, as you, you might recall from our study last week, the amazing story of Simon of Cyrene. Jesus is coming out of the city gates. Simon is coming in from the country, uh, probably from uh, Cyrene was in Libya, of course, and we talked about uh, Simon was from Africa. So you've got an African man that uh, has come for the Passover for whatever reason, whether he was a converted Gentile or a partial Jew, we don't know. But we know he had come to Jerusalem, and he's coming into the city while Jesus is coming out of the city. Roman soldier grabs Simon says, you take the cross beam. So he puts the cross beam on him. He doesn't have a choice, or he would have been crucified. So he takes the cross beam Jesus' bloody crossbeam follows Jesus, and as we talked about, amazing, Simon's never the same. We see him in the book of Acts someday. Paul even uh, references his son Rufus. So Simon will go on to, as I mentioned before, I would love to hear Simon preach on the cross, wouldn't you? He was there. He carried the crossbeam. He becomes a prophet of the Lord. And so after Simon sees Jesus uh, crucified, Jesus is there, and he's laid between not one, but two thieves, one on either side. The scriptures would be fulfilled. And we want to take, start to take a look now. As, as Jesus is now on the cross, he's got thieves on either side of him. He's got a throng of people watching him, mocking him, sneering at him, just kind of pondering what's going on, assessing who Jesus really is. Jesus enters into this dialogue with these men. If you're taking notes, I've titled our time in God's Word this morning, The Power of the Cross. And we want to look first at something I've titled, He Redeems, from uh, this conversation that takes place. If you can advance the first one, I think it just sat for a little bit there. Jesus, 
he's sitting between these two, he's, uh, hung between these two criminals. And one of them begins to say, if you're the Christ, save us and save yourself. Now, this is very similar to what people were saying down on the ground. If you're really the Christ, if you really have the power of God, get off the cross. Now, how many think Jesus could get off the cross if he wanted to? Absolutely could. <laughs> Not only could he get off the cross if he wanted to, he could have just sat there and thought, consume every human being from all eternity right now. Everyone gone. He could have done anything he wanted to, but he was submitted to what? The will of the Father. To stay on the cross. Brothers and sisters, it takes a lot more power to stay on the cross than it does to come off it. Wouldn't you agree? The power to stay on the cross is when we get to the end of the story this morning is what convinces many people this really is God because he could have come off. But the presence of the crucified Christ, we see these two thieves, and they're both assessing who Jesus is. The presence of Jesus crucified brings people, all people, brings everyone to a place of decision. The presence of his name alone has great power. The, the worship team was singing about your name. Just the name of Jesus has great power. In the book of Acts in chapter 4, uh, Peter, anointed by the Holy Spirit, he had healed a man who had been disabled from birth. And he was asked by the Sanhedrin, the same Sanhedrin we see here in Luke 23, he's asked by the Sanhedrin who were the priests and the Jewish elders in Acts 4, 7, they asked Peter this question, by what power or by what name have you done this? And Peter responded what? He said, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this is the stone which was rejected by your builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter said, A, I didn't heal him. God did. But the name of Jesus and the power of his name has healed him. There's great name, there's great power in the very name of Jesus. And his name, we just read in in verse uh, 38 there, his name was written above his head, wasn't it? This is the king of the Jews, actually. um, Matthew's gospel tells us the full inscription says, uh, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. That's the full inscription. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. But of course, it wasn't just the name of Jesus there at Calvary. At Calvary that day, it wasn't just his name, the very presence of Jesus. We talked about, again, last week, Calvary is another name for a Golgotha. It meant place of the skull. So we're called Calvary Chapel. I guess you could call us Golgotha Chapel. Doesn't seem to have the same ring in this modern age. So we decided to go with Calvary after all. All the others as well. But it, technically it could be Golgotha. In this place of the skull, it wasn't just that Jesus was there with his name. He was there with his physical presence. In the presence of Jesus and the power of his spoken word was there. He's bleeding and dying between these two men. And understand that the presence of the name of Jesus, the presence of the testimony of Jesus, the presence of the sacrifice of Jesus brings everyone to a place of deciding. And what is the deciding? Believe or reject. Brings everyone. Well, some people say, well, I don't believe or reject. I'm just in a holding pattern. I don't really reject him. I'm just not sure yet. No. Believe or reject. To not accept is still to reject. We've all been there. I, I kind of was in a holding pattern for 25 years until I received the Lord as my Savior in 1995. But all the time that I was in the so, so-called holding pattern, I was actually rejecting because Jesus was bidding all that time. This place of decisions, believe or reject, it's surrender or stiffen. It's live or die. That's what it comes down to. We know it's live or die for these two thieves on the cross because you would agree with me, they will die real soon. See, some people aren't sure when they're going to die. These guys, once you're nailed to a cross, 
you may not know the minute, but you're pretty sure you're coming to the end. Whereas other people aren't so sure, so because they're not so sure, they think that's way down the road. These guys didn't think that. They knew they were in a desperate situation. If you're taking notes, three things I want us to look at here from the text under this redemption here. Three Ps, if you will, to observe and relate to, the, to Jesus and the gospel. Each are evident and observable here in these final excruciating hours of Jesus. And the first one I want to reference is something I've titled The Power of the Plumb Line. I say, what in the world does that mean? Power of the Plumb Line. Any of you guys ever done construction? Ever worked with a plumb line? Yeah, so you know what a plumb line is? Some of you, one hand, thank you, wow. The rest of you have never seen a plumb line before, huh? Yeah, I've seen a level. Are they related? Yes, they're related, but they're not exactly the same. Years ago, years ago, I was speaking to a mature, older believer. I, I was newly saved myself. Hadn't been saved that long. And I'm talking to a mature, older believer. And I'm talking about sharing my faith because when I first got saved, I was working at a health club, and you know, I'd share my faith with the guys that, uh, that I worked with and my former friends that I would party with and you know, go to the bars with and everything. And uh, I was talking about sharing my faith and the typical standoffishness that you would get with people when you share your faith with them. You know, well, I'm glad you found something you like. I didn't find it. It found me. I never forgot what he said back to me. And I can't even remember the guy's name. I just remember the conversation. I never forgot what he said. He said to me, he goes, Jesus is the plumb line. No one else has ever said it to me since. I've never even heard anyone preach a message with that title. I've never forgotten that he told me Jesus is the plumb line. And instantly, because I had worked in construction in college, instantly I knew in my spirit what that meant. You ever know in your spirit what something means when you don't actually know what it means? I knew what it meant without fully knowing what it meant. Without fully understanding what it meant. Do you understand what I mean? Later, as I studied the scriptures, I saw that the prophets in the Old Testament, they actually mentioned this word plumb line. Actually, two words, but you know what I mean. Amos 7, 8 says this, Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel. God said he's setting a plumb line in the midst of his people. Other prophets reference this as well. I mentioned uh, because I understood what a plumb line was in those summers and doing construction. As I started to study the scriptures myself, and I saw in Jesus the perfection of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus that renders anything else crooked. Wouldn't you agree? When you lay Jesus next to anything, it's like putting a sheep next to white snow. He makes anything else look crooked. He renders every heart as imperfect. We all look like the leaning tower of Pisa next to him in various angles, right? Some of you say, well, if I'm the leaning tower of Pisa, I'm just like this. Some of you say, well, I'm probably like this. Some of you say, I'm on the ground by now. But the gospel and the word of God exposes where we're really at, doesn't it? And Jesus, he's not just the gospel. He is the gospel, but he's God incarnate. And he's also the living word made flesh. See, the recognition that we're flawed and imperfect necessitates an action or response from every human heart. Imagine if you hired someone to build an extension to your house. You're paying them good money, and you, you kind of arrive. They don't know you're walking around the corner, and they've, they've determined that the walls aren't straight but they're not going to fix them because you're not around to know about it. But you overhear it. You'd want to take action, wouldn't you? Hey, they're not around here. We'll just go ahead and put the roof on. Who cares if it's out of plumb? It's not straight. No. It needs to be fixed. And that's an unimportant thing compared to where we're at, isn't it? Jesus, when he laid against these two thieves on the cross, when he laid in the midst of them, They both can see who he is, and they both can see who they are. The question is, how will they respond? 
Let's take a look at this next, the power to persuade. The righteousness of Jesus, the eyes of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, all of these things compel and persuade the heart to let him fix our flawed condition. We can't fix our flawed condition. We can respond to his invitation, but we can't fix our flawed condition. Any more than if you were drowning in the ocean, you couldn't order a helicopter to come out of nowhere from the Coast Guard and drop down a life preserver. You only pray and hope that one shows up. You couldn't arrange it. Your cell phone's gone. You're drowning. We can't fix our condition. We are dependent on him. And the compassion of Jesus and his heart for broken sinners is unmistakable, and it's really unfathomable. Remember his words that we looked at last week in verse 34. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Who else could say those words? The rest of us would say, Father, incinerate them. That's what I would have said. These two men on either side of Jesus, they both hear, but one hears and one sees with spiritual eyes. He recognized that right beside him is the only hope to align and fix his heart relationship, that Jesus alone can make his heart straight and vertically plumb with God, vertically aligned with God by the blood of Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus. One recognizes this. The one thief, he's persuaded of the deity of Christ. He's persuaded of the innocence of Christ. He's persuaded the sinlessness of Christ. And he begins, not only does he persuade it, he begins to try and persuade the other guy. By the way, when you get a taste of who Jesus is, you don't keep it to yourself. You've got to tell somebody. He's not even saved yet. And he's already thinking, we deserve this. This humbled man has come to the realization of a couple of things. He's come to the realization that his sins are great. Did you ever come to that realization, that your sins were great? That you just hadn't had a minor, I went 56 and a 55? And that's kind of the way a lot of people think. Most of the people that you'll meet have convinced themselves they're pretty good people. Because they've never murdered anybody, I've never really robbed anyone, I've never done that, you know, they're really big crimes. Jesus looks at the heart. But this man has come to the realization that his sins were great. Not only that, he's come to realize that the punishment he receives and is receiving is well-deserved. He says, we, we are here because our deeds justify this. It is impossible to come to Jesus and to cry out for his mercy until we first believe his words. You first have to believe what he says. We have to recognize our sinful condition. We have to say, yes, Lord, I am a sinner. We have to desire to be cleansed and forgiven. When I was a kid, um, I was a really dirty, like, seven-year-old boy. My brothers and sisters were sometimes given the chore to have to get me to the tub. I didn't think of myself as dirty. I could have gone to bed that I don't only boys can do this by the way. They can be covered in dirt. The bed can feel like a sandy beach inside. And they don't care. And it baffles women's how they can have one sock on and one off and stuff like that. And that's the way I was as a kid, and I didn't think I was dirty nor did I care if I was dirty. But I had people telling me I was dirty. And see the Holy Spirit's telling this man you're unclean. You have to come to recognize your sinful condition. We have to desire to be clean. Once we recognize, we have to say, I need to be cleansed. I need God to wash me. I came to that place at the age of 26 where I said, Lord, I want to be cleansed. I don't want to live this way. I don't want the guilt anymore. I don't want the shame. And then we have to be, lastly, we have to be willing to lay down all of our excuses 
and all of our self-justification. Because don't we have a lot of excuses? Aren't we born with able... We can, we can pop out excuses like we're entrepreneurs, creating new ones as they come just rapidly to our minds. It's been said, though, as these two men, Jesus having a different effect on each of them. It's been said that the same sun that softens the wax also hardens the clay, doesn't it? One's becoming hard as a rock. One's becoming soft. The presence of the Son of God does this to human hearts. The other thief, rather than melt with humility and desperation for God, he still wants more evidence. Hey, if you're really God, come on, show us. Show us your power. I've heard about all the other stuff you did in the past. Show it now. He still wants more evidence. He's bitter towards God. He's bitter about his life. He's willing to, unwilling to accept the sinfulness of his own life and actions. You ever meet people that are bitter towards God? They think God's dealt them a bad hand. They think life's dealt them a bad hand. No doubt this guy probably felt the same way. He can think of people, also, he can think of people worse than him. That's always a danger too, isn't it? You can always find someone worse than you. You can always say, well, there's Adolf Hitler, or there's somebody... Always come up with someone. He probably feels that, really, if his circumstances were different, he wouldn't have been there anyway. We can tell ourselves these things, but that Jesus isn't telling him anything. Notice that Jesus is silent during all this. He's letting the Spirit work on his heart. But he's unpersuaded. And this one thief rejects the extended hand of Jesus. We know nothing more about him. We don't know anything other than he dies. We don't know if he has a final second change of mind. We know nothing more about him. But the rest of the story for the humble thief, oh, this is monumental on the page of Scripture. We could stay here all afternoon on just what happens next. Let's look at this last point, power to pardon. This one thief, he's not only humbled, he's not only aware of his sinful condition, he says, we, we've done, the, we're, getting the receipt, we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. He's not only aware of his condition, he's not only aware of the deity and perfection of Christ, but he's now fully convinced that although Jesus is dying this day, he's convinced this isn't the end for Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever thought about that? Have you read this? Jesus is dying, he's going to be dead very soon, and this guy is convinced that this isn't the end for Jesus. How do we know this? Because he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Do you have that kind of faith? Jesus is dying in his midst, and this guy is convinced this guy owns a kingdom. No, the rest of the people weren't convinced he owned a king. That's why they were saying, get off the cross, get off the cross. He's convinced Jesus really is a king. And not just a king, that he's about to inherit a kingdom. That's faith, isn't it? That's some faith right there. He needs Jesus, and he knows it. But he's brought his need has brought him to the cross. God's brought him to the cross divinely to hear and see Jesus face to face. And now he's not only seen Jesus on the cross, somehow God has allowed him to see him past the cross. He's seen past the cross to the kingdom of God. Perhaps he thinks something like this. If Jesus were to have mercy on me, maybe I'll see him many, many years in the future. Maybe at the end of the age, he'll have mercy on me. Oh, but Jesus blows him away with what he says next, doesn't he? Jesus gives the greatest words of assurance you could ever possibly hope to hear. There's actually nothing recorded like this in all of Scripture, but this situation. Jesus says, today, you and me are going to be hanging out in paradise together. Today. Unbelievable. The guy was convinced that, hey, I know you're going to inherit a kingdom, and maybe a million years from now, thousands of years from now, maybe you'll have mercy on me after I've spent some time more being judged. Jesus, no, 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 no. Today. Today. In fact, just hours later, hours later, him and Jesus will be together 
in paradise. Where is paradise? It was the temporary, it's called, also called Abraham's bosom. It was the temporary, beautiful, heaven-like place where the saints would go before the resurrection and then Jesus eventually would take all those saints out of that wonderful heaven-like place up into the throne room of God of heaven, Abraham's bosom. The other temporary place that people would go where the other thief, unless there was some other part of the story that God didn't record, he would go to the other place, which was hell, Hades. And there's a great gulf fixed between the two places. This is the only deathbed conversion recorded in Scripture. Did you know that? The only deathbed conversion in all of Scripture is right here. It's there for, I think, two reasons. One, to prove it is possible to have a deathbed conversion. And praise the Lord that it is. That's why pastors like myself and many others will go to deathbeds at the hospital and say, please receive the Lord Jesus, because God can do it. But it's also the only time recorded not to presume we can hang out and wait for that opportunity. Once to let us know God can do it, but once not to say, I think I'll just wait for a deathbed conversion. Because they're, they're, not, they're not often in Scripture but they're possible. But what a, what a, you imagine hearing the words of Jesus, today you'll be with me, today? You would have no fear at that point. Cross didn't bother you, dying didn't bother you. You know today you'll be with Jesus in paradise. The kingdom that he is going to inherit, you'll be right there with him. Let's take a look at our next point this morning. He reveals. Look what happens next. Verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was dark, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. We'll stop right there for just a second. If you're taking notes, first thing I'm going to look at here is the power of the signs. This power of the signs. There we go. Sixth hour was about noon. And ninth hour is 3 o'clock. From 12 noon to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it becomes like midnight in the sky. Now imagine you're there on that scene. Jesus on the cross between two thieves. He's already cried out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He just said to a man, today you'll be with me in paradise. Some people think he's a lunatic, he's lost his mind. Other people said, maybe he really is the king of kings. Starting, but all of a sudden, around noon, the sky goes black. Now, if you've ever heard anyone teach that this was probably an eclipse, mm-mm. no, we are, we know a couple of reasons why that can't be. Passover is in what what season of the moon? Full moon. Every Passover is at full moon. They are, The Jewish-Hebrew calendar runs on a lunar cycle. The Passover always falls on the full moon. You can't have a solar eclipse on a full moon. You know when you get solar eclipses? New moon. What's a new moon? When you can't see the moon at all. Then it starts to show a little sliver, and then it becomes that little uh, cow jumped over the moon thing later on. (laughs) But it, it starts out, a new moon doesn't show the moon. The only way you can have a solar eclipse is a new moon, not the full moon. Passover is always on the full moon. So that eliminates a solar eclipse right there. Even if there was a solar eclipse, you know how long solar eclipses last? The long ones last barely over seven minutes. This is three hours. This is God divinely blackens the skies. This gets a lot of people's attention. This has people starting to maul to say, at 9 a.m., I think he was just a common criminal. He said a few things that have already kind of raised the, skin, the hair on my skin, but all of a sudden the sky went black. I wonder if this will last seven minutes. Couldn't be a lo- or eclipse because we're on full moon. It stays dark. Half hour, hour, hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours, three Sky stays black. All of a sudden, people are lighting candles. 
It's become midnight at midday. What a revelation. They've already seen as Jesus has been on the cross now for the first three hours and now moving into the second three. These last three hours, though, the signs and the supernatural evidence revealed that this crucifixion was like no other crucifixion in the history of Rome or in the history of all humanity. That this man on the cross is not like other men. God is darkening the skies because what is he showing mankind? He's showing this sky is what your hearts look like. This is what your hearts look like. Black, dark. At noon, the darkness falls in Jerusalem. Some, uh, some letters were written to Rome that said darkness fell over the whole earth. We don't really know, but there were letters written that said darkness fell over the earth. And it wasn't lunar. It was supernatural. Over the next three hours, the darkness stays. I talked about why this can't be an eclipse. Can't be a solar eclipse. Doesn't fit the time frame. But it gets people tension, like, what is going on? People start to tremble in fear. Is it going to stay dark? Is this the end of the world? Is God going to actually just set the world on fire? What have we done? Did we really just kill God's son? A lot of questions running through people's mind. You know, most people don't talk about this part of the crucifixion. They just gloss over it. But you, if you were there, the power and impact these signs would have had on you and me. But it wasn't just that. At the end of the three hours, at the end of the three hours, all of a sudden the ground starts to shake. No minor earthquake. Graves start opening. Buildings start collapsing. At the three-hour mark, this just, by the way, Luke actually condenses it. The other Gospels tell us that the earthquake happens after Jesus commits his spirit to God. The temple veil rips in two, and then the earthquake begins. It's after Jesus' head goes complete, he's gone, the earth starts to quake. It's like God sends a punctuation mark. And after the resurrection, Matthew tells us, when Jesus rises from the dead, many other saints rise from the dead. I was talking to my girls about this, and I said, how, how would you think if three days later when Jesus rises from the dead, you open the door, there's Aunt Mary. Now, this is odd. We did, your, we did your funeral like six years ago. And what does she say? Jesus visited me in paradise and said, I'm coming back for a little while. Most people don't talk about this. Read Matthew's gospel. They didn't rise at the earthquake. Matthew makes it clear that after the resurrection, many returned to the city, and all of a sudden, you have hundreds, if not thousands of Uh, saints before who had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, some didn't come back. Some went on to heaven with Jesus, but some he sent back as a witness and a testimony. And all kinds of people had to cry and figure out how did uncle so-and-so come back? How did mom get back? Grandma's back. And they would die a second time. It didn't happen at that moment. The earthquake happens at three o'clock at the end of the darkness. I don't know about you, but these are pretty amazing signs that testify. Did you know that the apostles would later preach that God testified with signs and wonders at the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Not just the resurrection, but even before the resurrection. You have to be really hard-hearted to reject these things. And then we have the words of Jesus. Taking notes, the power of his words. The gospel records seven statements of Jesus while he's on the cross. Seven times Jesus speaks on the cross. We don't have time to go over all seven statements of Jesus. But uh, while he was on the cross, for example, John records that Jesus said these words, I thirst. No one else records it. John does. John also records that Jesus says to John the apostle, this is your mother. Take care of her. Right? He gives these words of John to take care of the mother of Jesus because Jesus is basically saying, I'm going back to live with my father. You have been put in surrogate charge of making sure that my mom, when she becomes old and she can't take care of herself, you're there to feed her, John. It's your responsibility. Don't you love when Jesus gives you responsibility? Don't you love when you're counted worthy enough to be given some responsibility? But Luke records three of these seven statements. 
And we see one in verse 34, Father, forgive them, no, 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 not what they do. The next one is in verse 43, Surely I say to you, you will be, in paradise, be with me in paradise. And then here's the last one that Luke records in verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. These are the last words he says. Right In that same area, he says, in the same area, he also says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then he says, Father, into your spirit, I commit my hands. Then he gives up his spirit. Then earth starts to quake. Graves start opening, but the bodies don't come out yet. They have to come out after he rises. But the graves start shaking. The buildings start collapsing. The Roman soldiers are like, what in the world is going on here? And Jesus knows that inside the temple, the veil is ripped in two. It would take a team of oxen to do it. But his final words here, I commit my hands to your spirit. These words of Jesus, they def- each of the seven statements of Jesus, they convey in harmony his love, his compassion, his deity, his pain, his anguish, his humanity, and his relationship with the Father. You know, you, you and I can tell when a child runs up to an adult if they're actually the child of a parent. You can tell by their body language. You can tell by the way they speak that they're not speaking to the neighbor, that they're not speaking to uh, some other relative. You can tell when there's a parent-child relationship. And i got to tell you, I'm positive if we hear Jesus talk to his father, if we had been on the earth, we would know we were here in the real father-son relationship. Wouldn't you agree? The way Jesus says father is different than the way you and I say father to God. You've been with him before time and space. You know, hearing, just hearing Jesus speak reveals the depth of the relationship he has. And this is as powerful as the supernatural signs. Wouldn't you agree? Just to hear Jesus talk to the Father is as powerful as the earthquake. Even more so because every time Jesus speaks, humanity is hearing the voice of the Creator, their Creator, the very one with the power over the earthquakes, over the dark skies. And yet Jesus, he's laid aside his supreme power to be the supreme sacrifice. He laid aside all that power to be the sacrifice for sin. And even though he's laid it aside, as his voice speaks and people hear him speaking to his father in anguish, the spirit is coming forth. His power is still in his voice. The pleading with his father during these hours, it begins to convict the hearts of people around him. They hear the pleading voice of Jesus. Man, if you hurt, you, I'm just a simple average guy like the rest of any other person. And yet, if Jesus was here pleading with you, his voice would sound a trillion times more effective than mine. And people could hear him speak. And the power that he would have on the hearts of hearers, even if it made them harder, but it made them softer, but they knew they couldn't avoid the weight of what they were hearing. And then we look at the result. In Matthew's gospel, I'll read it from Matthew 27, 54. We don't have time to turn there, but Matthew's gospel, we see the same centurion. Here the centurion says in verse 47, certainly this was a righteous man. Matthew gives us the full detail of what he says. He says this, so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake, right after he gave up his spirit, when he saw the earthquake, the centurion, things that had happened, they greatly feared, saying, truly this was the Son of God. This Roman centurion, a pagan man, started the day a pagan man. Six hours later, he didn't care what the Sanhedrin said. You could have had the high priest come up and say, Dear soldier, you've been conned by this man. Soldier says, "Um, I've done a lot of crucifixions. I've never seen the skies turn black from uh, from 12 to 3. I've never seen an earthquake punctuate the end of it. And when I heard him speak, and he told the other guy, you'll be with me in paradise, something in my spirit said, this is the Son of God. I don't care what your Sanhedrin says, you just killed God's Son. That's what the Roman centurion, that's how he felt at the end of this. Let's look at the last thing. We come to a close from the text. 
Once again, the enemy has attacked my clicker. <laughs> he hates my clicker. He rests. We look at these final verses in 50, verses 50, um, 50 through 56. By the way, not only was the Roman centurion affected, notice, by the way, in verse 48, that the people beat their breast. The whole multitude, it says, is under great conviction. It doesn't say they repented. It says that they start to beat their breast. They are on a quandary. What have we done? Why does anyone preach this stuff? Because when people talk about the resurrection or the cross, they just talk about it from an academic standpoint. This is not academic. This is life-changing. The people that were there did not just say, oh, that was interesting, it was dark, a little earthquake. They started to beat their breast. They were arrogant at the start. They're not arrogant now. They don't know what's going on. They don't know if he's God's son, but they know that something's weird. Verse 50 through 56, behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good man. He had not consented to their decision. By the way, he was a member of the Sanhedrin and had resisted their decision. It wasn't a unanimous decision. He said, no, do not crucify this man. He had already put his faith and trust in Jesus. So had Nicodemus. You guys remember Nicodemus, John chapter 3? Matter of fact, the two of them actually go to get the body together. The other gospels give the whole rest of the story. It wasn't just Joseph. Nicodemus goes with him. But he was good and just, not because he was good and just, but uh, that God had got a hold of his heart, and he came to believe that Jesus really was the Messiah. In Mark's gospel, Mark fifteen forty three, it says this of uh, Joseph of Arimathea. It says, coming and taking courage, he went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. The last two points we'll look at, the power to petition and the power of waiting. Seeing what Jesus has done for us, Appreciating his great sacrifice and his fearless approach to the cross should give us, brother and sister, it should give us some courage too. Because Joseph and Arimathea said, you know what? I've watched Jesus live a life where he'd walk into the face of his enemies, where he'd walk into the face of persecution, where he'd walk right into Jerusalem, not it could be crucified, but walked in there to be crucified. And Joseph said in his mind, it cost him everything, the least I can do is see if Pilate will let me take his body down. And if I die for it, I die. Because basically, he didn't know what would happen to him. He didn't know if the religious leaders would say, you're a member of the Sanhedrin, and we condemned him to death, and now you're taking his body off. He took a risk. 1 John 4.18 says, but perfect love cast out what? Fear. What fear can grip us, can it? Jesus, by his love for the Father, his love for the world, had shown an inner power to suffer and save that is beyond our comprehension. I cannot comprehend the boldness and courage of Jesus. But it comes from the love of Jesus because that's what John wrote. Perfect love cast out what? Fear. It's the love for God so loved the world is how Jesus went to the cross. Love will take you beyond your fears. Love will take you beyond what you think you can do. But that same power of love beyond our fears also takes us beyond our comfort. It takes us beyond our personal preferences. It's given by the Spirit of God only to the sons and daughters of God. Do you hear me? This power to love beyond our fears, our comfort, our preferences is given to the sons and daughters of God by the Spirit of God. Christian, do you have that? Do you see that operating in your life? Do you see God taking you beyond yourself? Do you find yourself taking courage? Do you find yourself taking time, maybe not going to Pilate, but going to somewhere else that's not comfortable, going to a different place that's not comfortable for you, going to a new step that's not comfortable, doing things that aren't comfortable or convenient for only one reason, because Jesus says, go. Go and do. God was speaking to the heart of Joseph Jesus has to be off the cross, according to the law. He has to be buried before what? The sun sets. That, according to Jewish law, he has to be buried. Roman soldiers, they would have just tossed him in a pit. God says, not my son. The prophecies 
mandate that he must be buried in such a way. And they fulfill prophecy. They come, they take him down, and they wrap him with linen. Joseph is taking a personal risk. He's also taking his personal time. So many Christians, they, they won't give their time to God. He's taking too much of my time. Time to be on Facebook for three hours, can't read the Bible for five minutes. Right? That's the reality we're in today. They have time to do all kinds of stuff. Time to spend seven hours in the yard on Saturday, seven minutes with God, I don't have any time. And God's going to look and say, you loved yourself. You love these things more than you love me. Joseph Arimathea says, I don't care if it costs all my wealth, I'll go. If they, if they take my money away, if they take my life, I'm going to bury the Son of God. If I, if I can do it, God will open the door and I'll make it happen. He gave his time. He gave his tomb. That was his tomb. He gave it to Jesus. The job was difficult and bloody. Since they took him off the cross. Can you imagine pulling someone off a nailed cross? I know you've probably overlooked this before. Oh, yeah, he went and took Jesus, put him in the... The more I thought about this, can you imagine having to take Jesus off the cross? Nailed to a cross? I don't really do good in bloody doctor's offices. And yet God could call us to do something that goes way outside of our norm. And he goes and does it. And Nicodemus is there with him. What a difficult job. What a bloody job. No doubt. Can you imagine how emotionally draining it would have been? The fear of going to Pilate was enough. He's left, he's a frazzled string of a man trying to put Jesus in the grave. And you know what Joseph would tell us if he was here today? Here's what I think Joseph would tell us. It was the least I could have done. That's what he'd tell us. See, those who truly see the cross, they look at sacrifice vastly different than most. David Livingston said this. He said, people talk of the sacrifice I have made spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice, which is simply paid back as a small part of the great debt owing to God, which we can never repay? It is emphatically no sacrifice, say rather is a privilege. David Livingston. Last thing we look at here, the power of waiting. After Jesus is put in the tomb, all the apostles, the women, they're sad. They start to head back home, and now they wait. What happens next? When you come back next Sunday, we'll look at what happens next. But they don't know that. Even though Jesus said he'd rise from the dead, they don't really know that yet. The sovereignty of God had determined that Jesus would be buried before the Sabbath, but that Jesus' body would now rest on the Sabbath, just as the law had commanded. Six days shall a man work, seventh day rest. See, he had finished his earthly ministry. He had gone to the cross exactly as he said he would. In Genesis 2-2, all the way back with the creation, it says, and on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. And Jesus was not just aware of what happened in Genesis 2. He was with God, and he was God. He had done the original work of creation. Now he did the work of what? Redemption. So 4,000 years later, Jesus now rested from this second great work, the first work of creation, the second great work of recreation or redemption. It was now complete. From Bethlehem as a baby to the three-year ministry in his 30s, early 30s, then entering Jerusalem just one week earlier, then clearing the temple of the money changers and all the hypocrisy and silencing his critics and eating the Passover with his disciples, sweating great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane just 24 hours, less than 24 hours earlier than finally dying on the cross. He could now rest from his labors. He had finished the work. Truly, he could say, it is finished. In the beginning, he had created the world and a perfect garden for mankind. Now he was laid in a garden for the sins of mankind. And his followers, they go back now to rest on the Sabbath, exactly as the law demanded. They had to rest because they were exhausted. They were sleepless. They were distraught. They had no strength left. They go back to rest. And then it's silence from God. There's nothing coming from heaven. It's all quiet. You ever have silence in your life? Like, 
God, where are you? You know? There's power in silence, though, isn't there? Leroy Brownlow said there are times when silence is the loudest voice. See, the silence purifies our time. The silence helps us to go back to the foundations of what God has said when things are silent. Christian, in those times when God seems silent, here's what you need to know. God is still working. While it's silent here, Jesus is with the other thief with his arms around him in paradise. You see, it wasn't silent where God was. It was just silent on the other end. They don't know that the silence of the Sabbath will lead to the triumph of Sunday. They don't know that they're waiting now, but they'll be worshiping very soon. The silence right now and their despair will lead to deep and abiding joy. They would later, all the followers of Jesus, the women and the apostles, they would later look back on the cross and forever remember the love and forgiveness that flowed from Jesus. They were forever changed by the power of the cross. How about you? Coming to a close, this is a hymn I used to sing to my girls when I'd put them to bed when they were real little. And um, so I'd pray with them and I'd sing this song. They were small in the bed. And it was written in, uh, it was turned into a hymn in 1959. But the original words came from an Indian martyr um, in the 19th century. Here's how the words go. You may have heard it before. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though I may wander, I still will follow. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Will you decide now to follow Jesus? No turning back. No turning back. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the power of the cross. If there was no cross, there'd be no salvation. Lord, we thank you that the Holy Spirit reveals to us our need for it. Lord, we desperately need, even those of us who have come to know you as our Lord and Savior, even if we've been born again, we still need the cross as a purifying work in our life. We still need its power in our life. We don't have the strength, Lord, to stand in this world apart from your help. And we ask, Jesus, that you give us a fresh love and appreciation for the work you did on the cross. That we, You give us that power to go beyond ourselves, beyond our comfort, beyond our convenience. You give us the love to love the unlovable. Breaks through our excuses and all of the things, Lord, that we construct for ourselves that, Lord, gets in the way of the will of the Father. We ask, Lord, for the power of the cross renewed in our life. Thank you for coming. Thank you for dying. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray today would be the day they call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. That they'd be like the wise thief. A lifetime of sin. Lord, he didn't get a chance to do one good work for you and you brought him to heaven. Truly amazing grace. How sweet the sound. We ask these things.